dominate the news. And the ones that slip under the radar. We also interview local lawmakers, policy experts, and other investigative journalists. The Voice of San Diego podcast, every Friday. Subscribe now, wherever you listen. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 12 of the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast. I'm Ryan Wolt, and this is the show where I bring you the stories of coffee professionals, entrepreneurship, and coffee education. I'm back for the 101st episode of this podcast and trying to get a little bit coffee smarter with this week's returning coffee expert, Jared Hales, green coffee buyer and co-founder of Hasea Coffee Source in Anaheim, California. Hasea serves as a green coffee resource for fledgling and established coffee roasters, and Jared offers regular coffee education classes, covering a wide range of topics that we cover on this show too, from beginning roasting to brewing and coffee history. Check out all of the Hasea offerings online at haseacoffee.com. Hasea is spelled H-A-C-E-A, coffee.com. Today, Jared and I are going to talk about how climate change is impacting green coffee sourcing in real time. As usual, our coffee conversation veers a little bit, but we get back to it because, as Jared says early on, it's a hot topic. I don't think he intended to drop that perfect pun, but you can bet that I definitely do. While you're listening today, check out at Roast West Coast on Instagram and Facebook, and subscribe to this show's newsletter on RoastWestCoast.com. Right now, it's time to get moving. You know the drill already. Make sure your coffee mug is full and settle in for this Coffee Smarter podcast featuring my interview with Jared Hales of Hasea Coffee Source about climate change. I should say, Jared, welcome back to the show. Welcome back to Roast West Coast. Uh, the coffee podcast. We're going to get people coffee smarter a little bit today. I appreciate you being back. And I wanted to ask you before we get started, uh, one, what are you drinking these days? And two, what's new at Hosea Coffee Source? Today I had an Ethiopian coffee as a natural from Cartel Coffee Lab in Arizona. Oh, nice. Yeah. And they've got a location in Palm Springs as well. That's right. You're right. Um, forgot about that. My sister roasted over there for a little bit. So she she gave me the bag. Nice. Very cool. Yeah, we stopped there on our last trip to Joshua Tree and just had an unbelievable coffee. Oh, cool. Excellent. At the Palm Springs location. And they're connected to this like boutique hotel. And right. we thought, man, this would be so cool to come stay here. And then we came home and like looked up the room rental rates and we're like, we can just camp. Like, <laughs> I've been there. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, very cool. And what about Haseo? What's new with you guys? Uh, it's, you know, just busy sourcing our coffees, getting everything shipped. And yesterday I just finished a, another day of classes. So just kind of plugging along, setting up the next year of coffee. <laughs> I saw you <laughs> recently, I think we're a speaker at something called uh, Cup of Culture. Uh, what was that about? Yeah, that was a TEDx event with uh, UC Irvine. So really more of just like a discussion around how coffee affects communities and cultures. I think originally it was intended to be pretty local, but someone 
someone put plugged me into that event and the conversation went a little bit more global, which is cool, you know, just because of my experience working with producers and exporters. And so I was able to kind of comment on how coffee affects people in other places in the world, right? Hopefully, I think I uh, got through to some people on, you know, their their cup of coffee has a bigger impact on just just their neighborhood, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that actually leads us uh, really well into our topic today, which was not my intent. I do not plan that far ahead, <laughs> but I appreciate uh, the coincidence. I wanted to talk to you about how climate change is impacting the sourcing of green coffee. And I've talked to other guests on this show about climate change, Jay Rusky, uh, who's a farmer in particular up in Santa Barbara area, Galita. Mm. Um, and I've talked to some roasters about what they think they're seeing or who have gone on origin trips and their direct trade partners are. But you're really right in the middle of everything. So I'm hoping you can kind of talk us through what some of those impacts are now and maybe what you're preparing for down the road. Yeah, it's a pretty big and a hot topic in the coffee scene right now, right? And actually, you kind of nailed the segue even better than you thought. At the end of that TEDx event, one of the last questions that I got was um, this, essentially. And uh, I think I had like four minutes to answer it. So, <laughs> okay. Not, well, not, I'll you give know, you four time. and a half. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, as you are kind of hinting at, climate change is having a pretty deep effect on the coffee industry. I can, I think what I'll do here is kind of keep it pretty straight to my experience. So people can kind of fit that into their own experiences. But basically, as of July last year, we saw the the commodities futures market of coffee, the C market. It went from somewhere around $1.40 per pound up to like $2.20, $2.30 per pound, something like that, in a matter of about a week or two. And this nearly doubling of the sea market was purely weather related. So uh, a big frost had come and hit Brazil. And it's estimated that it may have damaged about 10% of the entire country's coffee production. Brazil produces like somewhere around a third of the entire world's coffee. So when a third of the world's coffee gets hit by 10%, it has a big impact, right? Sure. And I, I would want to clarify just for anyone listening, one, the the sea market price is traditionally depressed from where it probably should be Correct. at like $1.40, right? But when we're talking about some of this coffee in Brazil as a producer and that price, that's actually still below what a roaster might pay for craft coffee, like a specialty coffee, right? We're talking mass consumption coffees to some extent that are being, I'm not saying that craft coffees won't have the same impact. They obviously do. And, and it's such a growing market. But when you start thinking about how much coffee is, is sold every day at say a McDonald's or a Dunkin' or a Starbucks or a on and on and on and how much coffee they demand just to keep their businesses operating right 
that's a lot of where that's coming from, right? Yeah, I think Nestle is actually the biggest coffee buyer in the world. So, so yeah, definitely the C market affects specialty prices, but specialty prices are usually like double, sometimes triple or quadruple what the C market is at um, and really paid for based on where the coffee's coming from and what it took to get them there. Whereas the C market is just pure supply demand, like quality is not really talked about except in like free of defects. We could do a whole episode on the C market probably. Uh, <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll let people uh, get excited and <laughs> anticipate that. We'll stick to the climate change question today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the, it, basically this um, at its very core, C market is kind of an indicator of supply and demand for coffee globally, right? I think we can kind of sum it up as that for this conversation. So when, when Brazil gets had this frost, essentially it took all that supply off the market in the future, right? We can see that the plants, I mean, the plants almost look like they were in a fire, like in a, in a wildfire. The leaves turn brown overnight. Um, they look like they've been scorched. And essentially the plant, the plant may not die, but it will have to drop all of its leaves and essentially start from nothing. Um, and so that if it's damaged hard enough, it could take two years for the plant to recover all of its leaves that it lost. Wow. So it's a pretty devastating event for coffee. And that's why coffee, you know, doesn't grow where there's frost. And I think the last time there was a frost like this in Brazil, it was in the seventies. Um, so it's been a long time since the world has seen something like this. Um, so just in the last year or less than a year, we have been kind of dealing with the consequences of that weather event, right? Um, like real consequences um, as far as the effect on availability of coffee globally. So yes, Nestle pays cheap prices, but they still need a certain volume of coffee to kind of feed their machine. And when 10% of Brazilian production is off the table, where, where do you get that coffee? You know, demand has not shrunk for coffee. Um, if anything, it's grown. I don't have the number, but globally coffee consumption is increasing year over year. You know, Asia historically has not really consumed coffee and they're starting to just kind of wake up to it. And Asia has a huge population, right? So if, if India and China decide to drink twice as many cups of coffee in a year, that's going to have some major impact on supply and demand. I was just reading, uh, sorry to interrupt, but I was just reading about um, a craft coffee shop that opened up in India and people are traveling from hundreds of miles to go there because they're in a region that just doesn't have, you know, craft coffee on every corner the way we might hear in some communities. And interesting, but you could see where that they were stoking demand and, and creating, they're the beginning of their, this wave of coffee in a new right. region. Right. And this is a country with 1.5 billion people. You know, we're talking 
five times the size of the United States, who is the biggest buyer of coffee. So there's a lot, a lot of potential for demand to grow. But what does that look like as far as supply, right? And so this is where the climate change question really comes in. It's basically the, the land that is viable for growing coffee is shrinking. Um, and so for the last several decades, the world has kind of been trying to solve this problem. What do we do? You know, what do we do? So there's a few, a few things that, that can be done, like different varieties that grow at lower elevations or grow at warmer temperatures, you know, but with warmer temperatures, you have colder temperatures. There's always a balance somewhere. So you have like places like Brazil getting frost just last week. I think it was Wednesday or Thursday. The coffee market went up 8% in one morning because of forecasted frost. Now, it looks like it's not going to hit, so the market settled down a little bit. But just in a forecast, that market was able to run away 8 or 9%, right, in a matter of hours. So this kind of volatility in weather is causing a lot of a lot of issues with speculative coffee buying, you know, which is what people are doing on the sea market. As far as what this is doing to like farms, right? I mean, you see what's happening to Brazil. You see frost hitting farms where that normally didn't exist. In other countries like Colombia, a lot of our partners are complaining about rain. So normally coffee needs a very clear distinction between its wet season and its dry season to produce a lot of coffee. Now, Colombia has basically had record rains for about two years straight. And what that does is it really reduces yields. I think, I think Colombia in January said they were down about 20% year over year as far as production. And Colombia is the third largest producer of coffee behind Vietnam and Brazil. And so this is a lot of coffee like off the table, just off the global market. And that's driving up these these commodity prices. What happens to a farmer in Brazil when that frost hits or to the farm and they can't meet uh, the not only meet the demand, but their lots have already been sold and those lots no longer exist. What happens then? <laughs> that's a default. That's a default on a contract. That's bad news for everybody. Yeah. I mean, so as far as the coffee, I mean, it can't just come out of thin air. The coffee doesn't exist. So what what can be done is, you know, subsidies from government. I don't know how Brazil implemented them, but I know when that frost hit, immediately they were on it, talking about it. But I mean, the coffee itself is just gone. Sure. And I wouldn't imagine if you were on the side of the contract where you had bought that lot that no longer exists, obviously that's not good for you, but you also don't want to like essentially put this farm out of business because you're going to depend on them another year down the road or two years down the road or three years down the road, especially right. in a market where we're already losing coffee growing regions. Correct. Correct. And, you know, we don't really have to deal with this as much as some of the bigger buyers that we're talking about 
but there's been even talk about like lawsuits, which I've never heard of before. I don't know if any are actually moving forward or what that's looking like, but just the fact that people are talking about it for the first time in my experience is pretty interesting. Um, I don't know what you're going to gain as you're kind of putting, like, what are you going to gain by suing a coffee producer for not delivering? Uh, you're just going to put him out of business, you know, like <laughs> you're going to need him to, to grow the coffee next year and hope that you can get it. What we expect now because of the way the climate has been going is on the other end of this insane rain in Colombia, there's got to be drought, right, um, on the other end. So it's just this total out of whack cycle that we've never really had to deal with. As I was saying, the plant needs that clear line between wet season and then dry season, wet season and then dry season, so the plant can go through its cycle. When that's not happening, you're getting cherry production in little spurts all year round. So now you have to pick coffee all year round and you gotta go go through the whole logistics process maybe four times, right? Instead of once or twice. So it just becomes way less efficient. So you're losing money and in, in inefficiencies and that's on top of the yield being reduced as well, the overall yield. So it's quite a problem that I don't know what the solution is, to be honest. Varieties or species of coffee like Robusta, right, which a lot of people kind of frown on, these are, these are much more hardy plants. And so there are varieties that are more like hybrid varieties between Arabica and Robusta, and they can grow in a wider range of environments than like, let's say, Geisha, right, which is super picky on where it can grow and which is why you often see price pretty high but these hybrids just don't taste as good they don't taste like geisha so there's gonna have to come a point where a farm is gonna have to choose you know do i continue to grow these high quality potential varieties that are not yielding or do i take them out and put more resistant or hardy varieties is that even enough Will, if I plant these hardy varieties, it's going to take two years for them to produce. What will the climate look like in two, five, 10, 20 years? You know, there's definitely not a good answer. I don't have an answer, but it's an issue that we're dealing with today. As the importer, then, how is this imp impacting you and your relationships with farms and then with the people you're then selling coffee to? I mean, how are you, how are the logistics on your side changing as opposed to the farmers? I mean, log logistics aren't changing, but our conversations with vendors are changing. The most immediate impact that like, let's say this frost had, right. And I think any, any um, weather events like this that happen in the next few years, which I assume that they will, we're going to, we're going to have this kind of flare up of the same issues again. And what we're dealing with is, let's say, I mean, I can use some specifics. Let's say I, the coffee market, since I started buying coffee in about 2015, has pretty much been between like 90 cents a pound and $1.40 a pound. 
Uh, that's definitely under the cost of production for most of the people that I buy coffee from. But while the market was at these prices, I was paying between $250 and $350 a pound. And I paid those prices no, no matter what the market was at. The market was at $0.90. Cents, I paid 3 bucks. The market was at $1.40. I paid 3 bucks. right? Uh, well, now the market... When the market went to 250 this year, my three bucks doesn't look so good anymore, right? And so some gr- some producers decided to sell their coffee essentially on the market, like to just some faceless random buyer, maybe a broker, maybe a big co-op that's in their town. But essentially they just went and sold it. And then they get my call. Hey, where's the coffee? Oh, I sold it. Interesting. <laughs> what am I supposed to do, right? What happened to me paying you double or triple for the last six years, seven years, right? And so that conversation goes differently for each relationship. And I can tell you that the the better the relationship, the more open the communication the less likely that is to happen. And we've had to already kind of shift and replace some vendors because of issues like this. And what's going to happen, I, I can already tell you what's going to happen in two years when some when the weather chills out and we're in a period of just a bunch of coffee, coffee market's going to go back to $1.20 and those guys are going to call me and I'm going to have replaced their coffee already and have started a long-term relationship with somebody else. You know what I mean? So it's really not in anyone's best interest to kind of chase that. I think I can speak for a lot of roasters who are trying to support direct trade uh, in its different forms in saying that our goal is to get sustainability as far as like monetary sustainability for coffee producers and that means we can't use a futures market that changes when brazil's weather forecast changes right that's not fair for somebody in honduras or el salvador like that's just not that's just not fair to them i mean why should i pay them less because brazil has great harvests right that doesn't mean that their costs went down so <laughs> So I think I've been having a lot of different conversations with producers in how we can maybe create some more resiliency in situations like this. You know, it has to be a win across the board for us and them and roasters. So how can we do that? You know, one one idea that I've been thinking about, I, I get different responses from different people but just like a mar- more of a margin-based uh, system, right? Where it's, yeah, prices will increase when your costs of production increase, but it's not really related to the C market necessarily. But I think, I think as far as how we, how we kind of prepare for future events like this, it's going to be in some sort of pricing structure or negotiation structure that still benefits everybody, but can be resilient against like 
higher input costs or labor shortages or whatnot. As a person who doesn't have to worry about this every day, I just go and buy my cup of coffee, which I'm frankly, as I'm listening to you thinking is the right way to go. (laughs) No offense to you uh, and your chosen profession. I'm assuming at some point down the line, these prices are going to start impacting coffee drinkers. I mean, prices have already gone up over the past several years. We're getting into, you know, where I'm regularly seeing four or five dollars for a, a batch brew or a decent cup of coffee. I've been going around San Diego County recently and like kind of just ordering a batch brew and, and tracking the pricing and anywhere from 250 to 450 for like a 12 ounce cup of coffee. I'm imagining that this everything you're talking about will our prices on this end will have to go up in conjunction with what you're seeing on your end because yeah. all those it might take a while but those those expenses are going to have to get pushed down the line somewhere. Yeah, ultimately they ultimately the final consumer has to pay for it. I mean, roasters can't afford to eat the margin. They already do eat some fluctuation, but they can't eat sustained higher costs like this. Mm -hmm. So what we're seeing basically now, like as of April, 2022, the coffees that have been affected by this frost are starting to, I'm sorry, the coffees that were purchased on a market that were affected by this frost are starting to hit, you know, the U.S. And we're, Hasea, as I mentioned earlier, we're finishing up a lot of our buying around the world, mostly in Central America, and our our prices are higher. We're paying a lot more for coffee. So as that coffee starts arriving between now and August, the prices that roasters are going to be paying is going to be higher. And so a lot of roasters this year, this quarter, I think are starting to raise their price. Roaster here locally, Van Dyke Coffee Roasters. And I could see his menu, his chalkboard menu had a big dark line like he had erased something, right? And there were prices written over that. And so I asked him, oh, did you change your prices? He said it was the first time in eight years that he's had to change his prices. So even even the holdouts, I think, are going to have to raise them. And, you know, the good, the good news is, honestly, once it comes down to the final coffee drinker, it's not terrible. You know, if you raise the price 50 cents a cup, that's not really going to break your bank. But what that's going to do all the way down the line is pretty massive. Sure. If if you're already drinking like a high quality craft coffee, the pricing changes are a little more acceptable to you because you are you're a little bit more aware of the situation. You're already going for a premium product. Mm-hmm. I think where people will start getting upset is when you see like a McDonald's coffee at two dollars, and it sounds crazy. Like it's already the cheaper, like less lesser coffee to, to an extent. But I think mm-hmm. my experience in beer was always. You know, if I raised raised the price of a domestic draft twenty five cents, you know, all of the regulars who came in to get that happy hour domestic draft every day, they're the ones who are going to be upset, not the right. person who comes in to have a beer with dinner. You know, it's <laughs> going to be, you know, that that guy, uh, 
just a quick uh, aside, I did have a gentleman once uh, in a bar that I was bartending at where we raised our happy hour light beer prices from 75 cents to a dollar. And he was furious, said he would <laughs> never come back, never come back ever. And and I didn't see him. He, he didn't come back the next day and I didn't see him for six months. And one day he came in and I said, hey, welcome back. You know, can I get you a beer? And he ordered a beer. And I said, so what brought you back? And he goes, well, he goes, I found this other place that was selling their beers for 75 cents. He goes, but it was a 70 mile drive round trip. And I just like gas, <laughs> gas went up. So I didn't want to pay it anymore. And I was like, but on principle, he had been driving every day to get oh his happy God. hour beer. And I think that'll happen at some level, but I don't necessarily know that. And maybe I'm in a little bubble because if I see a coffee shop has raised prices, I generally assume it's because the coffee is more expensive and or I've kind of vetted them and trust that they are paying more for their, you know, the coffees they're buying from you and, and you in turn are paying more for coffees you're right. buying from the farmer. But it all comes back around to that consumer producer trust. Yeah, circle of trust here, right? <laughs> so I don't know what the big players are going to do. I don't know what McDonald's will do because this will be temporary, but long term, you know, we'll see this happen again. So I don't know if these larger companies are okay, just kind of like tightening the belt on their coffee, right? Like let's take a company like Nestle. They probably could make up their money somewhere else or you know they may have the reserves that they need to weather this so i don't know what they're going to do to prices which would be the the consumer that would feel it the most right as you kind of put it but if if these these types of events continue which it seems like they will with more frequency uh you know it's hard to predict if we're going to have a frost every 10 years or every 20, you know, I don't know, or every two, but I do think that they're going to get more frequent. So we'll see how they kind of respond. I know a lot of coffee in the grocery store has already gone up, but that that's even related to just cost to get it on the shelf, right? Not even necessarily the, the coffee, the ingredient. And I know roasters are getting particularly hammered with cost increases. You know, for me, all I do is I, I sell one product. So yeah, okay, prices are going up on my one product, but coffee shops have to hear that answer for just about everything from their staff to their cups to their everything, you know, construction, if you're trying to open something or, you know, get health department compliant. Everything is just so expensive for roasters. So I do think consumers should prepare to pay more. As we're talking, I'm thinking about other logistics on the roaster end of it. And just knowing, let's say you have a pound of coffee and it costs, you know, 450 or something was what the roaster paid. And you start breaking that down. How many cups of coffee can you get out of a pound, you know, at 22 grams, say for a pour over? You're talking, you know, let's say you can get, if you do it perfectly, you're getting 20 cups of coffee, give or take out of that pound. Right. And you, that breaks down to how much, how many, how much does it cost you to make that? But 
on a one-to-one basis, you're like, okay, it's it's not so bad. But then you start thinking about the sample roasts that go through to get that coffee dialed in. You start thinking about, you know, the efficiency, maybe somebody, maybe the coffee isn't coming out as well. So you're really only getting 15 or 16 cups per pound. And all of, all of that keeps increasing the cost of every single cup that follows it. And so I used to build a 10% waste margin into the products that I was selling for food and beverage. But I, where I would be worried, I think from the craft roaster side is that either a, they are going to have to dial in their roasts faster using less waste, less samples, or they're going to short those efforts. And as a consumer, we might be going along for the ride a little bit. And even if they're serving the same Columbia coffee for six months, where they get it to in that roast two, three, four months down the line might be where it would have been Mm -hmm. in those first few weeks because they didn't take as much time and to, to go through that process. But that's just uh, speculation on my part. I hope I hope not. <laughs> I mean, the reason why specialty coffee is possible, I think, is because it actually tastes better, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, why would people continue to drink it? I think that actually the specialty industry is a little bit more better suited for this than, you know, the big market players because as you kind of mentioned or hinted at like when my $3 coffee goes to 350 that is not as dramatic as my $1 coffee going to 250 right right <laughs> and so we can absorb it a little bit better a little bit easier just because we're already paying high prices and i should say uh, you know, there's some coffees we buy that we pay six, seven, eight, ten dollars a pound for. Some really special coffees. Producers didn't raise prices on those. Interesting. So should we should a roaster buy, <laughs> you know, eight dollar coffees? It might it might be the path to resiliency, at least as far as pricing goes, if you can make your margin at the retail end, right? Yeah. It depends on your market to some extent, you know, if mm-hmm. you're in a neighborhood in a community that is at that level yet, as much as if they're not at that level, as much as you know that that coffee is worth it, you just may not be able to get there fast enough. You got to kind of grow with right. uh, with your consumer. I recently interviewed a gentleman, Ian Nelson from uh, Doma Coffee up in Idaho. And one of the things we talked about was the changing consumers that they had coming into their shop. They've been a shop for 22 years. And so what people expected, you know, 22 years ago is totally different from what a new generation of drinkers is expecting now. And yet they have to service both of those consumers. How do you do that? It's a tall order. (laughs) It it was just a really interesting thought uh, experiment for me to think about. Okay. You have essentially one generation who then their kids are now the new generation and all the different things that they've experienced. Whereas maybe 20 years ago, you were looking for a dark kind of traditional roasty, cheap cup of coffee. They're your core. They're what got you here. But now your new generation is going, I want a big fruit bomb. That's, you know, and I'm willing to pay five bucks for it. So how do you manage the differences? But I think education is big, right? And that's why I was, pretty eager to say yes when 
I got invited to do that TEDx event. And even these conversations with you are just more opportunity to share with coffee drinkers. And I think as people learn more about coffee, they start to look at it differently. They appreciate it differently and they pay for it differently. Right. Absolutely. I was just, I was going to end this session with you by asking which you felt was more prestigious, the TEDx event or the Roast West Coast Coffee <laughs> podcast? <laughs> uh, probably the podcast. I mean, you you reach more people, I think. <laughs> uh, well, I appreciate that vote of confidence. <laughs> Jared, uh, it's really great seeing you again and just chatting. Uh, I'm looking forward to our next conversation and uh, thanks for helping us get coffee smarter. Thanks, Ryan. Okay. To recap, I want to start with some basic statements. First, I couldn't find any recording of the TEDx Culture of Coffee event that Jared participated in. If anyone from UC Irvine is listening and knows where it is, please send it to me. More directly related to our climate change conversation, the three largest coffee-producing countries are Brazil, Vietnam, and Colombia. Vietnam, in particular, is known for Robusta coffees. Right now, on the green coffee sourcing side of the industry, there are real-life consequences of a changing climate in the form of weather events, like frost or storm or extended rainy seasons, that impact the availability of coffee globally. The frost in Brazil last year, the worst in half a century, being an example. That bad weather has existed isn't new, but how often these unpredictable weather events are happening is. Changing weather patterns are forcing producers to change their growing and production schedules, which reduces efficiency and reduces yields and adds growing seasons, which increases labor costs and ultimately, at some point, may force farms to make some difficult choices on which coffees they grow, the more popular, flavorful, but less hardy Arabica or the stereotypically lesser-respected commodity-grade Robusta coffee or something else altogether. There was a great column in the Washington Post this week, written by Marissa Garcia, about Caffea stenophylla, a formerly lost coffee species, and climate impacts on the coffee industry. Stenophylla, and I hope I'm saying that right, may have the potential to be the future of craft coffee, as it is much hardier than Arabica, and it can grow at much higher temperatures. It doesn't rate quite as high as many Arabicas yet, but the ones that have been produced, roasted, and brewed just meet the minimum scores to be considered specialty craft coffee, and that is with only a very short runway of experimentation on the growing side. Jared mentioned the anticipated growth of the coffee industry as its popularity grows in formerly non-coffee drinking countries like India and China, which will create massive logistical problems in trying to meet demand. Marissa's article gives us some hard numbers. According to the column, by 2050, coffee demand is expected to triple from 165 million bags of coffee to 500 million. And as I'm saying that, I'm realizing they didn't specify how big those bags are. But either way, it's a boatload of coffee. Beyond just finding coffee plants that will not only survive but thrive in a changing environment, there are also impacts on supply chain logistics. Storms alter shipping routes, flights get delayed, Rising seas impact warehouse spaces near ports, which are already backed up into oblivion, causing more delays on the roasting production side. The list is never-ending, 
Which brings me to my final thought. As I drink this medium-roasted Burundi from father and son home roasters David and Andrew, I'm struck by how much more I appreciate drinking coffee when I take the time to be intentional and appreciative of every single cup. When I'm drinking coffee while writing a script or a story or designing a new book cover, my coffees just disappear, and then I refill, and they disappear again. When I take the time to sit without obvious distraction and make the thing that I'm doing be drinking coffee, not only does it take me longer to drink that cup, but I feel more connected to the world around me. While I'm drinking and enjoying and seeking out flavors with my mouth, I'm also more aware of everything going on, the passing of the moments, and I feel at ease for one of the few moments I can remember to be at rest every single week. I appreciate that cup of coffee for the time that it gives me to be present, as well as the way it tastes, and when I'm done, I generally don't need a second or a third cup. In a changing climate, making time to value the fruits of the world around us seems like a good effort to undertake and will also help reduce strain on that supply chain. Thanks to Jared for taking more than four minutes to chat with me today. And check out HaseaCoffee.com or at HaseaCoffeeSource on Instagram to learn more about their green coffee and coffee education offerings. And of course, follow at Roast West Coast while you're there and check out this show's newsletter at RoastWestCoast.com. Please subscribe to this show. You can subscribe for free and I'll send this podcast to your email every single week. Or help this show grow by choosing one of the paid subscription options. You'll get access to the Bean Journal, and paid subscriptions and our sponsors are the reason we can keep this program going every single week. A huge thank you to Brad and his wife Katie, future coffee entrepreneurs themselves, for subscribing. I'm glad to have you as part of this coffee community. And of course, thank you to all of the show's industry partners, including Café La Terre. I had a great coffee from Crossings Coffee Roasters there just this week. Moster Coffee Company, Steady State Coffee Roasting, Camp Coffee Company, Ignite Coffee Company, Ascend Roasters, Coffee Cycle Roasting, First Light Whiskey, Marea Coffee, and Cape Horn Coffee Importers. Links to those awesome businesses, subscriptions, and anything else we mentioned on the show today can be found in this episode's notes or online at roastwestcoast.com. Thank you all for listening, for supporting this show, and this show's sponsors, reading the newsletter, and caring about coffee, and more importantly, the people in coffee. This episode of the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast is, was, has been written, produced, and recorded by me, Ryan Wolt. I hope this show has found you happy, healthy, and with at least enough sanity and coffee to make it through the day. For those of you headed out for a cup of coffee this week, please always tip your baristas and be sure to drink good coffee. Hey everyone, if you like the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast, you might also appreciate the I Like Beer the Podcast. Listening to these guys is like being a fly on the wall of the pub with a few of your favorite mates having a pint. These professional beer appreciators have plenty of stories to share on everything from the mating habits of penguins to their behind-the-scenes brewery experiences. 
Check out the I Like Beer, the podcast, wherever you are listening to this show about coffee. Or head to ilikebeerthepodcast.com.